Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for all these people that have come. I ask you right now in the name of Jesus to fill me with your Holy Spirit, to anoint this message, to change lives, to bring healing, to do all that you want done for every single person in this room, no matter where they are. You know what they've been through. You know what they're going through right now. And you know what is to come. So, pray you do what you do best, Holy Spirit. And I surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, 2,000 years ago, Peter, after having a little discussion with Jesus and some of the disciples on confronting sin and forgiveness and reaching the lost and God's heart and all that, he asked Jesus a question. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? How often, Dudley, shall my spouse sin against me and I forgive him or her? Up to seven times? How often, Dudley, Todd, shall my boss so my child... Shall my mother-in-law, father-in-law, brother, sister, sin against me, and I forgive them? Up to seven times? And Jesus replied, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seven times seventy times. Seven times seventy. How much is that? 490. You say, well, Dudley, some of them, they passed that. If you're counting, you're missing the point. He didn't mean 490, so at the 491st time, that's it, no more forgiveness. Right? I mean, that wasn't what he was saying. And you say, some people say, I don't really have a problem with forgiveness. And you have another problem. You're brain dead. Your heart is disconnected from your head. You're living, you're living divorced from your feelings. Or you're living in a cave or you're taking too many drugs. I'm serious. And I want to just tell you all, just to start this out, is that what I'm going to, t- what I'm going to share with you tonight, it's not because it's mine, it's, it's, Jesus's teaching, not my teaching. But what I'm going to share with you tonight has the potential to ultimately radically change your life right now and in the future forever and ever more, no matter what circumstances you're in, no matter what you have gone through, no matter what you're facing now, no matter what you will go through. It has the absolute power to radically change your life and your marriage and your relationships. 
I'm telling you, it's that important. And it applies to every single person in this room more than you may think. So, what I want to encourage you to do is pretend that you need this. Okay? Even if you think you don't. And open up your ears to hearing something that maybe you think you already know, but that I'm telling you, you don't know as well as you think you do. Okay, and I don't say that arrogantly, I say that lovingly. Before I get into the message, has anybody not gotten one of these? Raise your hand. Okay, everybody's got one of these? Okay, uh, raise your, keep your hand raised, it's going to get you one. I'm going to refer to this later, don't worry about it right now. So, each of these sessions that we've been having, this is being session number five, we're covering one problem that I typically see in marriage. And this one applies across the board, not just marriage. But problem we're going to cover tonight, problem number four, is quite simply resentment, unforgiveness, and bitterness destroy marriages. Really, it destroys all relationships. And ultimately, us. My question is, do you, do you have a problem with it? And I already said you do, whether you think you do or not. The reason being is that a storm has come, one is here right now, or one will come. I promise you. So, the problem is resentment, unforgiveness, and bitterness. Resentment, just to explain what that actually means, people use it wrongly all the time. They use the word wrongly. They say, I resent you. Like they're saying that I, you know, I, I resent what you did. And they're talking about it like a feeling, like resentment is a feeling. Resentment is not a feeling. The word resent comes from two words. Resent means to refeel. The word resentment means to refeel. So if you say, I resent you, you're saying, I refeel you. That's what you're saying. And that's not really what you mean. I mean, I know what you mean when you're saying I resent you, but you resent someone, you refeel old painful feelings when you rethink or rehash or the offense comes to mind. You refeel it. Like when you think about what happened, what they did to you, and you, when you rethink it, it's like watching a movie of the offense and you refeel it. That's what a resentment is. Refeeling the same offense that happened a long time ago over and over again. Okay? Then unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is simply what it implies. It means that someone did something that hurt you or caused you pain. They wronged you. They sinned against you. And you haven't forgiven them. And some people get confused as to whether or not they've forgiven them. They, they feel like they've got to keep forgiving them. I'm going to talk about that tonight. And then bitterness. What is bitterness? When you taste something that's bitter, it's, you, you don't want to swallow it. You, it. It tastes nasty in your mouth. And it, you want to spit it out when it's bitter. It makes your face Go like that, right? You ever tasted some bitter candy or 
bitter herbs or something like that. Bitterness is a feeling of deep and bitter anger or ill will. It's, it's sort of like cynicism and animosity that results from experiences that you've had that have given you heartburn in life. That you've been soured by what life and other people have done to you. And you become bitter. So what I'm saying, the problem is resentment, the refeeling of all offenses, unforgiveness, and bitterness. It destroys marriages and all relationships, and it ultimately destroys us. And we're going to get to the solution. i got four, four solutions, four-part solution that we're going to talk about. Before I do that, I want to share with you a story that Jesus told. And it was actually right after Peter asked him this question, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Up to seven? And Jesus said, no, seven times 70. And then as Jesus is often known to do, he told a story to make his point. So this is what he said in Matthew 18, verse 23 through 35. Verse 23, for this reason, referring back to what Peter just said, what he told Peter, how many times should I forgive my brother? Jesus says 490, actually infinity, as many times as they come. For this reason, he said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, we're not, we can't relate to kingdoms and kings and slaves because that doesn't exist in our world today. So I want you to think about this and like, think of like this major property owner, a really rich man that owns a lot of property, okay, all over the place and he has a lot of money and everybody that does business in his his domain or in the area comes to him for money to do their business, to invest. He's like a bank. You know, he's got so much money. And they come to him and they, they, they borrow money from him to do business, to buy houses and, and to do their business, to invest, to build inventory so they can do business. All right. So, and as is the case with some loans, you know, there are some types of loans where if the bank loans you money, they can come and demand full payment for the loan anytime they want. There's some that can't do that, but there's some that they can do that. If the bank suddenly takes a turn for the worse, or if the economy takes a turn for the worse, sometimes people that have loaned you money can say, pay me now, they're everything you owe me. So, Jesus is saying, for this reason, for the reason we're talking about, this issue of forgiving people, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves a property on a rich man who wished to settle accounts with the people that he had loaned money to do business. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. The equivalent in our dollars, $10 million. How would you feel if you owed that much? One of the guys owed him $10 million and was brought to him and he wanted to settle 
the account. In other words, pay up. Pay me what you owe me. $10 million. Imagine that. Any of y'all ever owed anybody money? Anybody ever owed a credit card debt or taxes or a relative? How does that feel, first of all? It doesn't feel very good. It it weighs on you. It's a burden. This guy owed $10 million. He was brought before this Lord who was settling accounts. In verse 25, But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. In other words, the Lord, because he could not repay the $10 million, and he was demanding that he do that, he basically said everything he owned would be liquidated and sold, including him and his children. Sell the wife and the children too. Give me the best I can get. Verse 26, The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself, fell on his face before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. He begged for mercy. The truth is, think about it, the debt was so big that he would never be able to repay it. And I would say, I would suggest to you that he had to know this. And he had to know that his Lord knew this. But he said it anyway. So, was he just promising to repay him to get out of trouble? Just like some of us do? Might this have been an indication that what he was experiencing right then was worldly sorrow, not real godly sorrow? It's godly sorrow that leads to true repentance. Many times when people do things wrong, or they owe a debt, or they sin, and they get caught or called to account, they they beg for mercy. They say they're sorry, just like this guy was. He's saying, be patient with me and I'll pay you everything. There's no way that he could pay him everything. It was a debt too big to be paid. So I think he was experiencing worldly sorrow here, not true remorse, not true sorry, sorrow, sorrow. We're going to see this borne out later. Verse 27, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him all the debt. Forgave him $10 million worth of debt. He didn't arrange or demand a payment plan or reduce the debt like the IRS sometimes does. He forgave the entire debt and set him free. How would you feel? Think about the biggest debt that you owe. And you come up here, you tell me what it is, and I say it's forgiven. Wipe clean. All the taxes you owe this year, I'm going to give it back to you. Imagine owing someone $100,000 and them saying it's forgiven. Imagine a million dollars. You borrowed for a business or something. And them saying you don't have to repay it. You're free. It's forgiven. Imagine $10 million. And someone forgiving you of that. That's what happened here. 
he forgave him $10 million and set him free. Verse 28. But that slave went out, the same guy that had been just forgiven $10 million, and found one of his fellow slaves, maybe his business partners or someone that worked for him, who owed him 100 denarii, the equivalent of $2,000. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Shaking your heads. The big question of this story is why? To me, okay, like why in the world would he do this when he had just been extended so much mercy, forgiven so much debt, and set free from a horrible life sentence? Why? I want you to think about that. Verse 29. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, beg him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Sound familiar? Verse 30. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. How do you pay back something that big when you're in prison? He was unwilling to forgive comparatively so little when he was forgiven so much. Verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Just like some of you were out there, it's not even a story, it's not even a, you know, a story is happening and you're getting upset. Well, his friends who witnessed both acts, the forgiveness of the 10 million and then him seizing his you know, his worker or whatever that owed him $2,000, putting him in jail, they witnessed all of this. It deeply affected them, so much so that they told their Lord. Then verse 32, Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Note here that the Lord viewed this as wicked, even evil, horrible, Verse 33, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave even as I had mercy on you? He couldn't believe it either. How could you be shown such mercy and not in turn show mercy to others? I mean, come on. Verse 34, and his Lord moved with anger handed him over to the torturers, which also means tormentors, until he should repay all that was owed him. Translation, his Lord became so angry that he sentenced sentenced him to be tortured in prison until he should repay what was owed, which would never happen. So basically for the rest of his life. The truth is, when we don't forgive, we are tormented and tortured. The 
God tells us to forgive others not just because He forgave us. And it's the right thing to do, but it's for our own good. The title of tonight is Forgive for Good. It's for our own good. It's good for us. You, you ever heard the expression, when you don't forgive, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the person you're mad at to die? Or, when you don't forgive, you dig a grave for two, one for the one who hurt you and the other one for you? When you don't forgive the person or thing that hurt you so deeply, it will keep on hurting you in so many ways. Emotionally, mentally, relationally, spiritually, and even physically. For the rest of your life. It causes some people cancer. There ain't no question in my mind. Eats you up on the inside. Irritable bowel syndrome, esophagus problems, problems in your innards all over the place. I'm not saying always that's the case, but I believe it is sometimes. My dad, who practiced internal medicine for his whole life, used to say that 70% of the people that came to see him didn't really have anything wrong with him. In other words, it was stress. No identifiable physical cause. Undetermined etiology. Verse 35. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, in case you forgot the previous verse, He's saying, basically, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slaves, even as I have mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers, the tormentors, until he should repay all that was owed him. And then he finishes it off. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you and you and you and you and you and all of you who listen if each one of you does not forgive his brother, his spouse, his mother, his father, the one who hurt you from his heart. So in case we didn't get the point and the true meaning of the story, Jesus makes it very clear. He's talking about his forgiveness of our sins against him and the father in relation to our forgiving those who have sinned against us. And he's issuing us a very strong warning that the same thing will happen to us if we do what this man did. The truth is, I believe, my own personal opinion, God doesn't even have to punish us for unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is a sin. He doesn't have to punish us for that. The effect of it, is torture enough on us. We do it to ourselves. Which is the way most sin is. Sin has consequences in and of itself. God doesn't even really have to punish sin that much. Sin affects you so negatively, it's punishment enough in and of itself. 
Consider also what Jesus said when teaching us how to pray, commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer of the Our Father. Y'all know it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. That sounds pretty good. I can deal with that one. Verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he's next to it, kind of hard to swallow. Kind of goes along with the story a little bit. Uh, we don't read these very much. Verse 14 says, and this is Jesus teaching us how to pray right at the end of the Lord's Prayer. We don't ever repeat this part of the prayer. For if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your spouse, the one who hurt you, the one who raped you, then your father will not forgive you your transgressions. Does that concern you? Concerns me. And, you know, the, the other thing that bothers me with this is this doesn't sound like the new covenant. This doesn't sound like grace to me. This sounds like the law. This sounds like the Old Testament. It sounds like salvation based upon works. In other words, i got to forgive to be forgiven? That sounds like forgiveness and grace is dependent upon me being able to forgive other people. That's what he said. Did he not? So how do you explain that? I thought we were living under grace. I thought we were living under the new covenant. Well, let me tell you something that I've learned, and this does not necessarily express the view of Todd or Family Life Church or whatever. This is just Dolly Bimini's opinion, okay? But it makes sense to me. Someone told it to me a long time ago, and it makes sense. You know, in the Bible, there's the Old Testament. In the, the printed Bible, there's the Old Testament, which finishes with Malachi, right? And then there's the New Testament, which starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, through the epistles of Paul and Peter and John, okay? Revelation. Old Testament, New Testament. Testament, a last will and testament, is what people write up to determine who's going to get what when they die, right? That's what a testament is. It's a will. And we know, if you've been taught this, which I know that you have, is that we also use the word covenant synonymously with testament. So Old Testament, Old Covenant. New Testament, New Covenant. And the good news for all of us is that we're not living under the Old Covenant anymore. We're living under the New Covenant. Correct? Right? You with me? Okay, we're tracking? So, what's the deal? This statement, unless you forgive, you're not going to be forgiven, is Old Covenant teaching. But it's being taught in the New Testament. But the problem is, we think that the New Testament, that Matthew is the start of the New Covenant. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is not the New Covenant. The New Covenant doesn't start until Acts chapter 2, which is the third book of the New Testament. The four Gospels 
or Jesus' teaching, and they're sandwiched between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They just happen to be included in the New Testament part of the Bible. But if you'll look at Jesus' teaching, this is why people get confused sometimes. If you look at Jesus' teaching, sometimes He teaches the law, the Old Testament, and sometimes He teaches the New Testament. What is He saying when He says, be ye perfect even as I am perfect? How are you doing with that one? Unless you, unless you exceed the behavior and the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. How are you doing with that one? Unless you forgive, you're not going to be forgiven. How are you doing with that one? You're, a lot of you are in trouble. He does that on purpose sometimes. You got to take his teaching in context. If, if, if you were listening to this, if Jesus was sitting here telling you this, I can tell you right now, many of you would become very disturbed inside. And it's exactly what he's trying to get you to become disturbed on the inside. It's like when they brought the woman that was caught in adultery to Jesus. Perfect example of what I'm saying. She was caught in adultery. Now they brought her. They didn't bring the man. I don't know, that might have had something to do with the men's movement in those days, or the lack of the women's movement. There had to be a man party, but they brought the woman, and they said, Jesus, the law says that we should stone such women who commit adultery. What do you say? So what they did, in effect, was they brought the Old Testament law that Moses had issued, which came from God, which was an ordinance based on the Ten Commandments, that they did do that. That's what they did. Commands us that we stone such women. What do you say? So basically they're bringing the law of God written by God to God in the flesh. What's he going to say? Curious. He says, the Scripture says that he bent down and he wrote some things in the dirt, which we don't know what it was. There were some people around. Pharisees were trying to trip him up catch him off guard, discredit him, whatever. And uh, maybe he was writing the names of the men that had also been with the woman. I don't know. Maybe he was writing down some sins, other sins. And then he gets up and he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And it says they all left from the oldest to the youngest until he was just standing there alone with the woman. And he said to her, he says, where are they who condemn you? And she says, there are none. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Well, you say, there it is, Dudley. I mean, that's I mean, a major contradiction. I mean, I don't know what's worse, that God makes the law commanding that people be stoned that make a mistake, for God's sakes, or the fact that he says he's going to do something and then he does something different. He doesn't even keep his word. You can't rely on him. There it is. That's why I don't read and pretend. That's why I don't pay attention to the Bible. It's full of contradictions. It's not if you understand Old Covenant, New Covenant. Jesus came to do something, and I'm not, it's beyond the scope of this teaching, but what he issued in when he, when he died and paid the penalty for that sin, for the sin of all mankind, he did something. He undid something, 
and did something. And then he was buried, rose again, went to heaven. And, you know, 50 days after Passover, when he was crucified, the disciples were in a room and the Holy Spirit came in a way that it had not come before. He he actually, you know, when when he was risen from the dead and he popped through the walls, he said actually received the Holy Spirit. So, they, they received the Holy Spirit to some degree, but then something happened in Acts chapter 2 that hadn't happened before, and they were immersed in the Holy Spirit. And they began speaking in tongues, and you know, people from all over heard them speaking the things of God in their own language. It was just a, incredible. Some people were drunk. It looked like they were drunk. It was 9 o'clock in the morning. I mean, something happened. Big time. The new covenant had been officially ushered in. But it didn't start till Acts chapter 2. If you consider what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 through 32, we get what the New Testament and the New Covenant teaches. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender hearted forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. We forgive others because we've been forgiven. We don't forgive in order to get forgiveness. Try that one if you want. It ain't going to work. Jesus knew it wasn't going to work. It was a setup. To create an effect. Make people think. Make people come to the end of themselves. The question is, why didn't Jesus condemn that woman that was caught in adultery? She was already condemned. The law did its work. It showed her that she was undone. She was guilty. Jesus did not come to condemn, but to to save. There was no contradiction if you understand the context of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We don't forgive to get forgiveness. And I would submit to you that you can only forgive to the degree that you've been forgiven. It's to the degree that you've experienced love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness that you can dispense it. If you haven't fully experienced love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness, it's hard for you to give it. So, the problem is... Resentment, unforgiveness, and bitterness destroys marriage. What's the solution? The solution is to learn to regularly receive, give, and seek forgiveness. Your life and marriage depend upon it. Remember what I said? A storm is here now, has just passed, or is on its way. You will be hurt, and you will hurt others. It is inevitable. And if we're going to stay married, we all better learn to do these three things. But first, you need to learn to receive it. Like the man in the story, however, you and I can't fully receive and experience God's forgiveness until we know how much we need it. Remember I said the guy said, be patient with me and I'll repay you everything? And I said it was worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow? He didn't know like that woman 
that she was condemned. He, he was actually sorry that he couldn't repay it. He wasn't sorry like he needed to be sorry. Because what he should have acknowledged is there's no way that I can repay it. That would have been true remorse. The fact that he promised to repay it says that he really wasn't in touch with how much he had sinned or that what he really owed. And my premise is you and I can't fully receive and experience God's forgiveness until we know how much we need it. So I want to give you a little exercise that might help you with this. You're going to love this. Okay, I gave you a little yellow sheet. I want you to look at it for a minute. First side, I want you to turn to the side where it says a new commandment I give you that you should love one another even as I have loved you. That's what Jesus said. And I want you to just take a minute in silence to look over this sheet of what it means to love and what you're expected to do. This is a commandment, not an option. God commands us to love like this. So just look at it for a minute. If you're listening to this, you can turn your Bible open and read 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, and then look at the definitions. 1 John 4, 7-8, 1 John 4, 19. I'm going to give you a minute to do that. I want you to ask yourself, how are you doing in these areas? You falling short in any? If you finish with that, I want you to turn the sheet over to the back. What you have here is the Ten Commandments, which is really an elaboration of the two great commandments that Jesus gave us, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The first four commandments have to do with loving God. Commandments 5 through 10 have to do with loving others. In other words, if you love God, you'll do 1 through 4, and if, if you love others, you won't do 5 through 10. So I want you to just look at those for a minute. And again, I want you to just consider how you're doing with them. You falling short anywhere? Have you failed anywhere? You don't have to tell anybody. Just be honest with yourself and with God right now as you're reading this. Where have you fallen short? Aren't you glad I gave you this exercise? So the solution to the problem is that we need to learn to regularly, even if we're a believer, if we've been a believer for a long time, no matter if you've got problems in your marriage, you don't have problems in your marriage, no matter where you are, what you're doing, where you, what you dealt with, we need to learn to regularly receive, give, and seek forgiveness. Your life and your marriage depend upon it. So... The first thing you need to do, point number one of this solution, is you need to experience and receive the gift of God's forgiveness. You need to experience and receive the gift of God's forgiveness. There's a, something we call the Roman Road, which comes from the book of Romans, which is one of Paul's epistles, which probably lays out the plan of salvation better than in any other place in the Bible. And there's four scriptures that kind of spell out the problem and the solution. Romans 
3.23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Are you convinced, having looked at this sheet, that you've sinned? Everybody's sinned. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Physical death and separation from God. The result of sin is separation from God. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice here that but while we were yet sinners, while we were shaking the fist in His face, while we were rejecting Him, even when we didn't think we needed, He died for us. He offered us forgiveness before we repented. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Before we repented. Not after. Many of us want people to repent fully before we offer them forgiveness. God offered us forgiveness before we repented. He forgave us before we repented. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness, with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. And then the good news, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. You know why it's good news? John 3.16-18 says it, what I've already said. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, places their faith and trust in Him, should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him, places their faith and trust in Him that what He did on that cross counted for them, is not condemned. He who does not believe has been condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then just to make the point very clear, Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. You don't earn it. It's given freely. The thief on the cross next to Jesus that begged for mercy didn't go to church, never read his Bible, didn't get baptized, didn't make an altar call, didn't sign a commitment card, didn't do a discipleship class, lived his whole life as a sinner, begged for mercy, asked for forgiveness, was truly sorry. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Boom. Didn't earn anything. Didn't deserve it. Now don't wait until you're dying because you may not get that opportunity. So, with all that, I want you to watch a little clip from the movie Fireproof. Some of y'all remember it. Caleb and Catherine had been married seven years, and their marriage was falling apart. They both had issues. And uh, his father, Caleb's father, was reaching out to him. He actually gave him that love there, the 40-day challenge to do something loving every day. And Caleb had been doing his best for 20 days to do it, and he was fed up. So he was like kind of having this little meeting talk with his dad because he was ready to give up. And Catherine was ready to give up too. And she, you know, he was trying his heart out and she wasn't giving him the time of day because she was, she had a wall up. She had been hurt so much. They had gone through so much. But I want you to watch this little conversation between Caleb and his father. When I realized who I was, 
and who he was, I realized my need for him. I needed his forgiveness and salvation. See, I, I don't understand that. Why do I need his salvation? What, am I going to be thrown into hell? For what? Because I got divorced? No. Because you violated his standards. What? Thou shall not kill? Dad, I help people. I am a good person. According to you. But God doesn't judge by your standards. He uses his. And what are his? Well, truth. Okay. Love. I'm honest. Faithfulness. I care about people. I am those things. Sometimes. But have you loved God, the one who gave you life? His standards are so high, he considers hatred to be murder and lust to be adultery. Dad, what about all the good I've done? Son, saving someone from a fire does not make you right with God. You've broken his commandments. And one day you'll answer to him for that. Caleb, if I were to ask you why you're so frustrated with Catherine, what would you say? She's stubborn. She makes everything difficult for me. She's ungrateful. She's constantly griping about something. Has she thanked you for anything you've done the last 20 days? No! And you'd think after I wash the car, I change the oil, do the dishes, clean the house, that she would try to show me a little bit of gratitude. But she doesn't. In fact, when I come home, she makes me feel like I'm, like I'm an enemy. I'm not even welcome in my own home, Dad. That is what really ticks me off. Dad, for the last three weeks, I have bent over backwards for her. I have tried to demonstrate that I still care about this relationship. I bought her flowers, which she threw away. I have taken her insults and her sarcasm, but last night was it. I made dinner for her. I did everything I could to demonstrate that I care about her, to show value for her, and she spat in my face. She does not deserve this, Dad. I am not doing it anymore. How am I supposed to show love to somebody over and over and over who constantly rejects me? That's a good question. Dad, that is not what I'm doing. Isn't it? No. Dad, that is not what this is about. Son, you just asked me. How can someone show love over and over again when they're constantly rejected? Caleb, the answer is, you can't love her because you can't give her what you don't have. I couldn't truly love your mother until I understood what love really was. It's not because I get some reward out of it. I've now made a decision to love your mother whether she deserves it or not. Son, God loves you even though you don't deserve it. Even though you've rejected Him. Spat in His face. God sent Jesus to die on the cross and take the punishment for your sin because He loves you. The cross was offensive to me until I came to it. 
But when I did, Jesus Christ changed my life. That's when I truly began to love your mom. Son, I can't settle this for you. This is between you and the Lord. But I love you too much not to tell you the truth. Can't you see that you need Him? Can't you see that you need His forgiveness? Yes. Will you trust Him with your life? last words that Caleb's father asked, asked him was, and I'm going to ask these to you, can't you see that you need him? Can't you see that you need his forgiveness? And will you trust him with your life? I want you to bow your heads with me for a minute. If you want that, regardless of where you are, whether you've done this before or not, I want to pray a prayer out loud, and if it if it resonates with you, just repeat it in your heart. It's just basically a prayer of surrender. Dear Father in Heaven, just do it in your... You don't have to say it out loud, just God can hear you. Dear Father in Heaven, I, I admit that I'm a sinner. And you know, just consider what you just looked at on that yellow sheet. The things, places where you've blown it, things you know you've done. That's what you're saying. When I admit that I'm a sinner, you're, you're confessing that you've sinned, that you've missed the mark. I admit that I'm a sinner and that I need you to save me. I believe that Jesus Christ was your son, died to pay the penalty for my sins, and rose from the dead to be seated at your right hand. Therefore, I ask for forgiveness of my sins based on what Jesus did for me. I thank you that through Christ, I'm forgiven. Jesus, I receive you as my Savior and Lord. I surrender control of my life and my marriage to you. I ask you to come into my heart and make me be the kind of person that you want me to be. I commit to follow you the rest of my life by your grace. Amen. Now look, to me, that's something that you do seriously one time, and it's a done deal. But it doesn't mean that you have to keep reaffirming. You don't have to keep asking for forgiveness when you do wrong and continue to trust Him. So wherever you are, wherever you've been, if you did that, this is the most important thing. Because if you're not experiencing God's love and forgiveness and grace and walking in that, you can't dispense it. You can't give what you don't have on the inside. 
If you're looking for your spouse to give it to you, you ain't going to get it from them. So point number one, and I'm going to cover the the last three points in three minutes, and we're going to watch a video five minutes, and we'll be ending at eight o'clock, okay? Point number one was that the solution is to experience and receive the gift of God's forgiveness. That's the most important thing. Number two, and some of you really need to do this, take this to heart, is you need to forgive yourself completely for past mistakes and failures and let go of the guilt and the shame that you're carrying. If God came as a man and died on a cross and paid that penalty for you, for you not to forgive yourself and not to accept forgiveness from God and your debt wiped clean is you're spitting in His face and you're saying what you did doesn't matter. You need to forgive yourself, let go of the guilt and the shame, and walk in grace, in love and forgiveness. Stop beating yourself up. Stop walking in condemnation. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how many times you've screwed up. It doesn't matter how many times you've walked away. There's forgiveness, mercy, and grace. 7 times 70 times 70 times 70 times 70. Once you get in touch with that, it'll change your life. If you've been a Christian for 20 years, there's some people who've been a Christian for 30 years, they they still haven't gotten it. Romans 8, 1. Romans 8 is a great chapter. And it, the first verse and the last two verses are like bookends of what I'm saying. Verse 1 says, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You're Noah and his family. God's going to destroy the world, but he put Noah and his family in an ark, and the ark saved them. Because they were in the ark, they were saved from destruction. When you become a believer and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're put in the ark, and you're saved from death. The blood of the Lamb is put over the doorposts. The angel of death comes through. He passes over you because you have the blood of the Lamb applied to your house, to your life. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So stop walking in condemnation. Let go of the guilt and the shame. Stop beating yourself up. Be free. And then he ends it, Unless that doesn't get you enough, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing, nothing, nothing ever that you can do, have done, doing now, will do that will separate you from God's love. The forgiveness is offered before you repent. It's there whether you receive it or not. It's there whether you know it, you need it or not. The the problem is, is if you don't receive it, you don't recognize and receive it, you won't get it. It's not that it's not freely offered. What more could you want? You need to walk in it. Live like it's true. And then Philippians 3.13 Paul says, brethren, I do not regard myself as laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to lies ahead. 
You want to keep reliving the past? You want to keep stay stuck in the past? Why? Let go of the past. Whatever's happened, learn from it. Forgive the people that have hurt you. Forgive yourself. Take responsibility. Do whatever you need to do. Work through it, but let it go. Leave it. Move it. Move ahead to the high calling that God has for you. You Move on. Learn from it and move on, no matter what it was. Deal with it. Process it. Forgive it. Then let it go. Move on. And then number three, third thing, part of the solution is forgive others just as God's forgiven you. We've already covered that. You forgive because you've been forgiven. These are some truths about forgiving others. And all this is on a handout out there. You can pick it up on the way out. Truths about forgiving others. Forgiveness is not a feeling, forgetting, condoning what they did, or letting them off the hook. Forgiveness is a choice, a decision, an act of the will, unhooking yourself, obedience to God's word, and turning them over to God. When you forgive, you're making three commitments. You will not hold it against them anymore. Number two, you will not keep rehashing the same claims and talking about it over and over again, the same old things. Number three, you will not allow your mind to dwell on the offense when it surfaces. Now, if a different aspect, a deeper layer of the offense comes up and you haven't dealt with that, it's like an onion. Sometimes, you know, my my dad went through treatment when I was 19. We shared the things he did that hurt us when I was 19. Later, I did some more work. I got in touch with some anger. I dealt with that. Later, I dealt with some more. I dealt with that. You can deal with different layers of the same onions, but you're not rehashing the same layer over and over and over again. Not if you forgive them. Three myths about forgiveness. Number one, if I forgive, I won't think about the offense and won't feel the hurt, pain, and anger anymore. False. Thoughts can pop into your mind all the time. You can be watching TV, listening to a song. They can do something that they did before, and all of a sudden the, the, the thing is playing in your head. You didn't choose that. It just popped into your head. It's not necessarily even the devil. It's just in your brain. It just popped in there. And if, if you let it, if you just let it play and you watch the offense, it's like watching a horror movie on TV. Your feelings are going to, you're going to start feeling feelings about it. So just because you forgive them doesn't mean the thoughts are not going to pop into your head and, the, and that you're not going to feel feelings about it. Because even after you forgive, you're going to have some pain and hurt and you're going to have to heal. And, and after you forgive, it's going to come back into your mind. Your, your part is, is to not dwell on it, to not just let it play, to learn how to not dwell on it. And there's a lot of little techniques I have. I have some materials on that. Uh, you can go to our website and look for it. And, and you can work with a counselor on how to get rid of that. Number two myth about forgiveness is I need to get all my feelings out and heal first before I forgive. False. You're not going to ever get all your feelings out because where the mind goes, the feelings follow. There, there are some feelings that you need to acknowledge and get out because unless forgiveness touches your feelings, unless you really tell the truth about how you feel, your forgiveness is going to be superficial. It would be like putting a Band-Aid over a boil. If you have a boil, you need to lance that sucker, squeeze the pus out, Clean it out, put some medicine in it, then bandage it up. Some of y'all try to forgive by just putting a bandage on it. You can't. You gotta squeeze the pus out of that sucker. 
Get all the nastiness out. You got to acknowledge the hurt and the hate and the pain. But you don't keep doing it over and 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 over again thinking that one day it's all going to get out. No, it doesn't work that way. You do it extensively, you do it thoroughly, and then in the midst of your feelings, your hurt, your hate, and your pain, in spite of it, you say, I forgive them, and I turn them over to you. That's what allows the healing to occur. Doesn't mean you're not going to feel anything, because, I mean, if you got stabbed in your stomach, and they stitched you up, you're not going to, all of a sudden, your stomach's going to be back to normal after you've been stabbed in the gut. It's got to heal. You got to take the stitches out. It's going to be sensitive to touch. Hurts are like that. It's a process, but it's also a decision. Forgiveness is what allows healing to occur. You don't heal, then forgive. You forgive, and then you heal. And then number three myth about forgiveness is if I forgive them, I need to continue to put up with future offenses and bad behavior. Not. You say, well, what if they keep doing the same thing? I said, well, what if they keep doing the same thing? Why do you want to deal with that? Maybe you ought to see a counselor, maybe talk about that. You don't have to keep putting up with abuse. You don't have to keep putting up with bad behavior. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where you have to put up with bad behavior. You don't have to. And I could give you a lot of examples. If I had a secretary that stole money from me, I'd forgive her, but I'd fire her. I'd probably fire her and then forgive her. She wouldn't work for me anymore. John Paul bailed on the first missionary journey with Paul and, 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 and Barnabas. He was Barnabas's nephew when they went and, you know, he bailed halfway through because he was a young Christian. He couldn't take it. Well, they get back. They want to go on another missionary journey. Barnabas says, well, John Mark wants to come. Paul says, he ain't coming. Barnabas says, come on, man. I mean, aren't you a Christian? Aren't you supposed to forgive? Paul said, I forgive him. He ain't coming. I can't trust him. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> Two apostles who loved the Lord split ways over it. And you know what? God caused it all to work together for good because they covered twice as much ground. John Mark proved to be faithful. Paul took Silas and they covered twice as much territory. And then John Mark acknowledged John, uh, uh, then, then Paul acknowledged John Mark's faithfulness at the end in his letters. So summary is, You tell the truth about how you really feel and what really happened and the offense. You have your feelings fully. Get all the pus out. Then you forgive. Then you heal. And sometimes you have to set boundaries. And sometimes the boundaries need to be set so that you can heal. Some of y'all might even need to forgive God or Jesus, too, for letting you down, even though he doesn't need forgiveness. But you might need to forgive him, too. That might be one of the reasons why you're stuck. And I need you to forgive me because I'm going five minutes over. Would you forgive me? Number four, you need to seek forgiveness from those you have hurt or offended, except when to do so would injure them or others. You need to learn to seek forgiveness regularly from those you have hurt or offended, except when to do so would injure them or others. Take some discernment as to whether or not you should do it or not do it. Sometimes you need to pray about it, talk about how to do it, whether to do it, not always do it. Matthew five twenty three through 24 Jesus said, if, if therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there, there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come back and present your offering. 
sounds to me, I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like he'd rather you get right with others than make a good showing at church. I didn't mean anything by that. Let's watch what true forgiveness, what, what it looks like to seek forgiveness. After Caleb had been had this little experience, he turned his life over to God. He kept working the love there. And his marriage was about over. And an opportunity presents itself. And he does what we all need to learn to do. Let's watch. leave your partner especially in a fire Caleb what's happened to you dad asked me if there was anything in me that wanted to save our marriage and then he gave me something um, I, I could let you read it Was it this? How long have you known? I found it yesterday. So what day are you on? Uh, 43. There's only 40. Who says I have to stop? I don't know how to process this. This is not normal for you. Welcome to the new normal. You didn't want to do this at first, did you? No. But halfway through, I realized that I did not understand what love was. And once I understood that, I wanted to do it. Caleb, I want to believe that this is real. But I am not ready to say that I trust you again. I understand that. But whether you ever reach that point or not, I need you to understand something. I am sorry. 
I have been so selfish. For the past seven years, I have trampled on you with my words and with my actions. I have loved other things when I should have loved you. In the last few weeks, God has given me a love for you that I have never had before. And I had asked him to forgive me. And I am hoping, I am praying that somehow you would be able to forgive me too. I do not want to live the rest of my life without you. Caleb, I'm supposed to give those divorce papers to my lawyer next week. I just, um... I need some time. To think. You can have all the time you need. 